0: entitled my thoughts this morning, Impossible. We will direct you to the book of Matthew chapter 19 as we begin our thoughts together. If you want to turn with me and read along as we study this passage of Scripture, I'd invite you to do so. You want to consider the question this morning as we begin our thoughts, what good thing do we do? to have eternal life. As a matter of religion, that's one of the most important, if not the most important question. The chief question that has entered into the minds of men throughout the history of the church and even throughout the history of worship from the fall of man onward to our present time. In other words, what is the remedy for our dilemma. Our minds naturally ask the question, what do I have to do? What can I do that when I leave this world, rather than standing before God in judgment, I can be with him in his presence? Now, after asking the question, I remind you of the title of this morning's message, Because that's a question I'm going to leave hanging until we come to the answer of the question which is contained here in the book of Matthew chapter 19 at the conclusion of the portion of Scripture that we want to study together. What good thing do we do to have eternal life? It's a question that as the conviction of sin comes to us, as we understand that we are sinners, that... We stand before God condemned that we're concerned with. It's something that might cause you to lie awake at night and wonder. You might worry about it. If you were to take a survey of people on the street, and sometimes you find preachers that do this on camera, and you can see the various questions they'll ask, what do people need to do to go to heaven? Or, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And if so, why? The questions. The answers, rather, to that question are usually varied. I wrote a few of them down this morning that I'll share with you. Depending on the person that you ask, what good thing do you need to do that you would inherit eternal life? Some people might tell you, well, you need to keep the law. And by the law, they usually mean the Ten Commandments. Of course, God's law is so many more commands than the Ten Commandments. It seems that every time they violated a a command or they did... Something that was against one of the laws that God gave. God gave a whole nother section with a whole nother group of laws. Law was given because of transgression. And so the more wicked and sinful people behave, the more commands God gave to order and detail and structure their lives. Some people might tell you, you need to keep the Ten Commandments. Or maybe even beyond that, you need to be circumcised and keep the entire law. In the book of Acts chapter 15, there was a group of people that came and taught Gentile disciples, Gentile churches, that they had to keep the law and be circumcised or they could not be saved. It's one of the opinions that you'd find in the world. If you ask some people, what do you have to do to inherit eternal life, they might tell you to do more good than you do bad, As my grandfather was... Aged near the end of his life. He died far too young of lung cancer. He was a lifelong smoker, but before he passed away, we talked about religion a number of times. He listened to the radio program a lot, but because of the painful experience in his youth with a very Pharisaical dictatorial pastor who was caught in an illicit relationship, he Didn't never go to church again. He was hurt. He was wounded, so he never went to church. But in conversing about heaven, he says, You know, I just hope that I've done more good than I've done bad so that when I leave this world, I get to not suffer in torment. Now, the problem with that answer is it doesn't take more bad than good to be severed from God for eternity. It takes one single sin because God is holy, God is righteous. He's a God of judgment and justice. If you commit one single murder, but the rest of your life you were a fine, upstanding citizen, do you get out of jail because, well, the good you did far outweighed the bad? No. That one crime is worthy of the penalty of that crime. The wages of sin is death. We're all sinners, and so therefore we are all condemned in the sight of God in and of ourselves. Some would say, well, you need to accept the Lord. Some would say you need to pray a specific prayer, and you need to say it this way. Now, we're going to come back to these in a minute. Someone say that you need to repent of all of your sins and believe. You often hear those, and that is a biblical statement. Repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe, Mark's gospel Says, but does that result in your salvation? Repent and believe, some would say, of all of your sins. Better not leave one. You better not repent of 99% of them. You better repent of all of them. Well, I ask you the question in your heart, do you think that you have repented of every single sin that you ever commit? Leave it hanging. Leave the question out there. We'll come back. Some might say, well, to be saved, you have to join a specific religious order. And it usually is the order that they're representing. Be a part of a specific religious order. Some would say, keep the ordinances. You've got to be baptized and you've got to take communion. And then, finally summing up the list, you've got to live, some might say, from conversion to death completely above sin, if you fall into sin, you're unsaved again and you've got to get born again again. How can we know the answer to a question that even millions of people who love the Lord Jesus, people that I believe will be in glory after this world, don't agree on? It's an important question, isn't it? The most important question, isn't it? How can we know the answer? Scripture records for us one particular exchange between the Lord Jesus Christ and a young man, a rich young man, a man known in Scripture as the rich young ruler, who comes to Jesus and asks this very question, "'What good thing do I need to do that I can go to heaven?' that I might inherit, as Mark's gospel says, eternal life. Now, As we begin looking at this passage, we'll read it for you. It's ten verses. And then we'll come back and comment through it. But I want to preface my remarks by saying that the answer to this question comes after the man walks away. Jesus doesn't immediately answer the question. Why? Because the man has a problem in his understanding that Jesus is going to reason with him through. The man doesn't understand, the man walks away, and he does so sorrowful. I might say that anytime we come to Jesus for the answer, and the answer is not good enough for us, the answer is not good in our eyes, we leave sorrowful. Because happiness is only found in obedience to Christ. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16, Behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, again, in the book of Mark, chapter 10, the question is worded, That I might inherit eternal life. By the way, you say, Well, which is it? It's both, that I might have or inherit eternal life. The word inherit implies. In fact, it demands that you receive it based upon the death of someone who has gone before you and left it to you. So that ought to tell us right there that salvation is not something that we do if we inherit it. Did you do anything to inherit something from your grandparents if they passed away? I've yet to have a, a rich relative pass away and leave me anything. When my mother's father passed away, he had a coin collection, and my grandmother distributed it among all of the grandchildren and between all of us. And there were a great number of us. We all ended up with just a few coins. I lucked in. All the ones that I got were silver. And the other ones were getting just mint sets and proof sets. And I got all the silver U.S. coins. And I was like, yes, because my grandmother had no idea that... The value of those is in their weight in silver, and it's 90% silver. So I actually kind of walked out of that looking pretty good. It's about all that I've inherited. When my father's stepdad died, his mother had died years before, I inherited an old rusty toolbox and an extension cord. My brother got there first. He got my grandmother's Bible. They still don't know where it went. They asked everybody in the family, where's the Bible? We don't know where the Bible went. Josh is over there whistling. I hope they don't watch the live stream. The mystery will be solved. Josh got the Bible. I got the toolbox. I got an extension cord. It was an inheritance. I got it because someone died that I was related to and they left it to me. What good thing must I do that I should have, that I may have eternal life? We'll come back to this question in a moment, and what this reveals about this young man's understanding. Jesus replied unto him, verse 17, "'Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, which?' Jesus said, "'Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother.'" And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man said unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? In Mark's gospel, the words are, One thing thou lackest. Jesus said unto him, If thou will be perfect, go and sell that thou hast. Give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, if that's where we were to end this story, discussion or this story, that would be very troubling, and we'll tell you why in a moment. If heaven required you selling everything that you own, giving to the poor, would you be a person who would be in glory? That makes us uncomfortable. Verse 22, But when the young man had heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, where it becomes very clear... Then said Jesus unto the disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of God. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Can you fit a camel through the eye of a needle? If you can, I'd like to watch. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men, this is impossible. With men, salvation is what? Impossible. Not merely difficult, but impossible. Who then can be saved? With men it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's go back to verse 16 and begin studying through this passage together. I've resisted so, so much the desire to just go right into all the comments that I want to say about it as we read through it until the last statement in this story, the words of Christ, his dialogue with this man was not merely troubling, but was outright terrifying. What if someone came today and they say, what do you believe here at Flint River about salvation? Well, you've got to sell everything that you have and give it all to the poor. And it's easier for you to go through the eye of a needle than to be saved. In fact... Salvation for you is impossible. We'd have less people here than we have today. Because that's not a message of hope, is it? How are people saved? Well, it's impossible. The entire conversation is terrifying until you get to the last statement with God, all things are possible. But you've got to get to that statement. Now, in between the man asking this and Jesus' actual answer that he wasn't even around anymore to hear, not only do you have Jesus reasoning with him, but he effectively tears down all of the man's self-righteousness. If I think that I have to do a good thing to earn eternal life, that is by definition an act of self-righteousness. Jesus tears down his self righteousness before giving him the answer to that question. And the answer is with men it is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. Behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? The first thing we notice is this man calls Jesus good master. And he doesn't seem to be saying it through any sort of irony or sarcasm. There were people that came to Jesus and they would use phrases like this to convey sarcasm. In other words, they'd say, oh, good master. And they didn't really mean it. But this man seems to mean it. In fact, we learn a little bit about his relationship with Jesus in Mark 10. Jesus beholding him loved him meaning that this is an individual not like Esau, but this is an individual like Jacob because Christ loves him. Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have, or as you read in Mark, that I might inherit eternal life? This man's assumption was that he could do something good to save himself from his sins. Now you might think we don't believe that here, and you'd be right. Millions and millions of Christians live today under a yoke of bondage that neither they nor their fathers could bear, quoting the language from Acts chapter 15, that they do something to make themselves worthy to stand before God in glory. It is a yoke of bondage that is too great for you. You cannot bear it. You cannot accomplish it, for one. But on the level of your conscience, you live, if you believe that, each and every day, with the stinging sense of reality in your soul that you are a sinner, and sinners cannot stand before a holy and just God. Our righteousnesses, as Isaiah says, are as filthy rags... We have nothing to offer God that He would be pleased with. And in your heart, the Holy Spirit cries that. And so as the mind brings us under legalism, I have to do this, I have to do that to be worthy to stand before God. Our heart cries within us that we are unworthy and we live every day in bondage. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that those who know the truth... That it makes them free. Discipleship is about freedom. The knowledge that you receive in the gospel sets you free. You live a life that is free of the yoke of the bondage that salvation by works and legalism and self righteousness brings. Now, this man had obviously heard enough about Jesus to associate Christ as a teacher of these concepts. He comes to Jesus, he says, "'Good Master, Rabbi, Teacher, "'I know that you teach about salvation. "'I've heard of your other sermons. "'What good thing do I need to do "'to ensure that after this life "'I don't suffer in torments, "'but that I stand before you in glory? "'What good thing do I have to do "'that I might have eternal life?' "'Notice very carefully,' Verse 16, eternal life. We're not merely talking about blessings in this life. We're not talking about blessings in obedience. This man is concerned with eternal life. By the way, John chapter 10, John chapter 17, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall know me. Christ gives His children eternal life. And being life that is eternal, it is life that doesn't end. It is life that is not taken away. It is not term life. It is not temporary life. It is not temporal. It is eternal. Christ gives His children eternal life. That's why they have it. That's why they will be with Him in glory. But this man believes that he can do something good to be with Christ in glory. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Jesus begins in verse 17 to dismantle the notion of salvation by works. He asks him an interesting question Why callest thou me good? What does the man say to Jesus? Good master. Good master. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Jesus answers with a question to his question. He often counters a question with a question. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Now, be very clear. Jesus is God. Jesus is good. Jesus' question in reply to that, why callest thou me good, is not inferring at all that Jesus is not good. No, we know through so many passages, passages of Scripture that not only is Jesus good, Jesus is good because Jesus is God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, this living Word. And without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14: The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Christ is the living Word, the second person of the Godhead, incarnate, walking among men. Christ is God in the flesh. 1 Timothy. 316, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received in the glory. And so when Jesus says there is none good but one that is God, Jesus is God incarnate, therefore Jesus is good. Further, concerning the goodness of Christ, I want you to notice a couple of passages from First Peter. And I say this to clarify because occasionally you hear a sermon on this passage that makes you cringe. I think messages ought to come with a trigger warning. You see a post on social media, it says trigger warning because there's something that's uncomfortable that if it's talked about it might throw you into depression or anxiety or any such thing as that. Sermons that diminish the character of Christ and attack His impeccability need to come with a trigger warning for me. Because when I hear sermons that paint Christ as anything less than the God-man, perfect and holy, well, I'm triggered. 1 Peter chapter 1 describes Christ as a Lamb without spot and without blemish in verse 19. Christ is what? A lamb without spot and a lamb without blemish. 1 Peter 2, verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Christ, what? He did no sin. Hebrews 4 describes him as a high priest that was tempted in all points, like as are we yet without sin. Christ, was God incarnate, Christ never sinned, Christ was perfect and pure and holy, He was without spot, He was without blemish, He did no sin, nor was any guile found in His mouth. That statement deserves one of the doxologies of Scripture. Blessed be His name forever, amen. Christ is perfect and holy. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. The purpose, the intent of this statement is not to say that Christ is not good, but that the only one in existence who is good is God. Therefore, beings that are not good cannot do anything to earn eternal life. Why callest thou me good? There is one that is good, that is God. Jesus is laying the groundwork for confronting this man's self-righteousness and his notion that good works lead to salvation. And Jesus begins to reason with him. Why callest Thou me good, there is none good but one that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, Jesus is engaging in an exercise with the man to prove that it doesn't matter who you are, how good you or I might think we are, there's always something in and of ourselves that stands between us and God. There's always a sin. None of us are perfect. We're all sinners. To stand before God based upon what you or I do would require that we keep the commandments of God perfectly from conception to death And the sad fact of the matter is, there's only one individual in the history of creation who has done that, and his name was Jesus. You see, you and I are sinners, worthy of judgment. We're already guilty, number one, we're guilty in Adam, because through the sin of one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so... Death has passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We are depraved in Adam. His sin has passed upon us because we are not merely some sort of separated creatures from our lineage, but we are Adam multiplied. You and I are Adam. We think if we were there, we wouldn't do what Adam did. But the problem with that is we are literally Adam. God created Adam, and from Adam you were born. You are Adam, and I am Adam. We are condemned as Adam's sin has passed upon all men. But number two, we are guilty in practice, guilty in nature, guilty in practice, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so as you read, In both testaments of Scripture, there is none righteous, no, not one. This man thinks, listen to what he says. He says, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? This man thinks that he has kept the law And that he stands before God without violating the law of God. This have I kept from my youth up, what lack I yet. Now, let's go and look through a few of these. And just you tell me if this man was actually innocent, without guilt, without having violated the transgression of God. Thou shalt do no murder. Well, none of us, I trust, have ever taken the life of another person in murder. Now, to be very clear, murder is when you take someone's life and you lack the authority and they do not deserve it. In other words, self-defense is not murder. If someone comes into your home in the middle of the night and they're attempting to kill your wife and children, please, men, defend your family. If you're a police officer and you take the life of someone attempting to kill you or another person, that is not murder. If the government executes a criminal, a heinous criminal, who deserves what he's receiving, it is not murder. If a soldier takes the life of an enemy combatant, that's not murder, especially in a just war. This is murder. There's a difference in killing and murder. Years ago, I was in a criminal justice class. I don't remember which one. I can tell you the campus I was at. I can remember what the room looked like. And the question was asked about the death penalty, and the teachers love to start conversation between everyone in the class. And he asked the question, what do you think about the death penalty? And someone spoke up very quickly, thou shalt not kill. You know, in the chapter after thou shalt not kill in Exodus Twenty, which is where those words are found. In chapter 21, you have transgressions that if they are perpetrated are to be responded to with the death penalty. In fact, if you read the law, it is, in our minds, very harsh. The number of infractions that resulted in death. If you had a rebellious child that wouldn't do what you said, and I mean, this is a bad, bad sort of teen child Scripture calls for them to be stoned in the street. There are all sorts of laws in the Old Testament that were to be punished by death. Why? Because that was to be a holy nation, but it was revealing God's moral standard and His anger and His vengeance against sin. And so it was intentionally, intentionally harsh because God is telling us that the wages of sin is what? Death. We think, Well, it wasn't a big sin. Well, God doesn't say the wages of big sins is death. God says the wages of sin is death. And so in the law, we're very powerfully given the lesson that all sin results in death. That's why we all die. Not a one of us is going to make it out of here alive. Not the sermon. But earth, y'all smile. I know it's a rainy, dreary day. I know it's a rainy day. We're not going to make it out of here alive. We're all going to die because the wages of sin is death. Thou shalt do no murder. Jesus further in the Sermon on the Mount clarifies, if we have hated someone or been angry at someone in our heart without a cause, we've committed murder already in our hearts. And so suddenly we realize we're all guilty of murder. Every single one of us is guilty of murder. You say, Well, I haven't done that since I was a child. Then you're guilty of murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You say, I've never had an affair on my wife. Well, have you ever looked at another person with lust in your heart? According to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you are guilty of adultery. We're all guilty of adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Have you ever said anything at all that was not true? If you have, and you all have, then you're guilty. Understand, being guilty of one law means that you cannot do something good to earn eternal life because you're now condemned. You're now condemned. You're a criminal, you're a suspect. A suspect in a justice system that has eyes and ears everywhere, who has a perfect record of all thoughts, intents, and behaviors in the world from creation until now. There's no escaping justice, there's no injustice, there's no escaping a sentence. Honor thy father and thy mother. You might do that now, rich young ruler, but what about when you were two? The terrible twos? What about when you were one and a half? What about when you were three and they said, eat the rest of that? You said, I don't want to eat the rest of that. Well, you just dishonored your father and your mother. Violating one law is all it takes. And truth be told, this man thought he'd kept all of this from his youth up, but he had broken every one of these just as I have broken every one of these and you have broken every one of these. In God's perspective, according to God's standard, we have all broken all of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Lastly... Now, it's interesting that Jesus ends with this one because Christ seems to answer it with relation to the man's wealth. This young man says, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? What else do I need to do? Oh, I've kept all of these. Jesus says, if thou wilt be perfect. In Mark's gospel, we read, one thing thou lackest. Now, I'm going to latch hold on that for just a moment. It doesn't matter who I am, who you are, how good we think we've lived. There's always at least one thing that we lack. And if we lack one thing, we are not what? We are not holy in and of ourselves. If we are not holy in and of ourselves, then like Adam as he was exiled from the Garden of Eden for simply eating of the tree of which God commanded him not to eat. You and I are exiled from the presence of God forever. You see why this would be one of the most terrifying portions of Scripture without the conclusion. One thing you lack. If thou wilt be perfect, go, sell that thou hast. Remember this is the rich young ruler. And give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now, treasure in heaven is an expression that is to be our experience. When we think about what our treasure is in this life, it is to be beyond the veil of this world. It is to be in glory. My treasure is above. My home is in heaven. Jesus basically tells the man how to be a disciple. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And if he were to come and follow him, guess what he would learn? He will learn how he's going to have eternal life, and it's not because of any good thing that he did. But it was only through Christ which gives his children eternal life. John 17, I give unto them eternal life. But what Christ is doing here is not giving him the recipe for salvation. What if I told you today the only way to go to heaven is to sell everything that you had, live as a pauper in the streets... Suddenly, I think the room would be empty. I think the first that would go would be Sister Rachel. She's like, I'm out of here. I'm leaving you here, bub. Jesus is not giving him the condition for glory. Jesus is tearing down his self-righteousness. By presenting this example to him to teach him that, no, he hasn't kept the law from his youth up. And two, if it required it, he wouldn't do it. Effectively obliterating the notion of salvation by works and self-righteousness. If there was a law, we would break it. If we had to do it, we would ruin it. Now, what specifically had the man done in violation of God's law, do you think, by accumulating so much wealth unto himself? The last thing that Jesus says is, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This is a very wealthy man. Jesus then tells him, If you'll be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor. What would loving his neighbor as himself look like in the case of this rich young man? Selling what he had and caring for the poor would be loving his neighbor as himself. Think about it. He's accumulated all this wealth unto himself. If he loved his neighbor like he loves himself, he would be caring for the poor. But there's another commandment that this man violates in this. It's one that Jesus does not list here in verse 18 and 19. But it's from the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. Greed. And lust, for money, is literally the sin of covetousness or coveting. This man covets money. That's his sin issue. And so Jesus reasons through these and comes to the the pinnacle of the conversation, the punchline, as it were, To tear down this man's self-righteousness. Remember, he comes asking, not how are men saved, but what good thing do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus effectively makes the point that it is absolutely impossible. First of all, you would have had to keep the law in perfect completeness from your conception to your death. And secondly, even if there was something that you had to do throughout your life, well, you wouldn't do it. You would not do it. And the young man, as he hears this, he goes away sorrowful. Now, give you a few points along those lines. Jesus' words in reply are not to give a requirement for salvation, but a scenario to tear down the man's self-righteousness. How do we know that? Jesus' words, number one, Jesus' words after this. Who then can be saved? With man it is what? It's impossible. Number one, we know that Jesus isn't giving him the requirement for salvation because of what Jesus said after this. Number two... We know that Jesus isn't giving him the requirement to salvation the way sinners are saved because salvation is not by works, which is where we'll conclude today's message. Scripture is absolutely emphatic that salvation is not by works. It is by what? Somebody say it. Grace. Grace, Grace, by definition, being unmerited favor. Number three... Why do we know that Jesus isn't giving the instruction on how a sinner is to be saved? Asceticism is actually warned against elsewhere in the New Testament. What is asceticism? Asceticism is the idea that for us to be a follower of Christ, we have to swear a vow of poverty and live in extreme affliction where we intentionally afflict ourselves, and so Because of asceticism early in the church, that was a movement. Paul warned against it in 1 Timothy chapter 4. As he talked about certain who would teach that we were to abstain from meats and marriage, which God has created to be enjoyed. Paul was prophesying through the spirit of monasticism, of being a monk. You think, well, if I were to be a follower of Christ, I would have to go join a monastery somewhere and live as a monk. Well, Paul literally warned against that as an error that was going to come into Christianity. And in the centuries after his life, it came into Christianity. And that is asceticism, intentionally denying ourselves to that extent, is not biblical. And so we know that Jesus isn't giving the requirement for salvation, but a scenario in which he tears down the man's self-righteousness. Again, he's answering the question, what good thing do I do? Now, for Mark 10.21, the one thing, again, it doesn't matter who you are, one thing thou lackest. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. If you're talking about earning salvation, you will always come up short. Because with men, it is what? It's impossible. So after this man leaves, Jesus gives this very interesting Analogy, how hardly shall a rich man enter into the kingdom of heaven? Now, understand the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Matthew 4, 17. When John the Baptist began his ministry, he begins by teaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. Jesus, when he began his ministry, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. When he sends the apostles, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. When he sends the 70 preachers out to cast out devils, what do they teach? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is the church. When everything is as it ought to be in the church, it is at hand. The day of Christ, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is not at hand, but the kingdom is at hand. And I trust when we come into His courts with singing and we experience His presence, we experience communion with Him through the Holy Spirit, we fellowship with Him. I trust that you have entered into the kingdom and experienced kingdom life. You are citizens of it through birth. You enter into it through repenting and believing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hardly shall a rich man enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when Jesus teaches this, these apostles are absolutely astounded. Would you not be? Now, they don't have their understanding opened yet. Remember, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, before Jesus ascends to heaven... He breathes on them. He says, receive ye the Spirit. And he opens their understanding of the Scriptures. He opens their understanding. This is why Peter could go preach such a wonderful sermon in Acts chapter 2. Whereas in Matthew 16, when Jesus says he's going to go and be crucified and resurrected, Peter takes him and rebukes him for saying he's going to die. Their eyes were still veiled. These men hear these words and they are astounded. They were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? If you were with Jesus and Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you would be astonished if not terrified. Now, you say, well, I'm not a rich man, it doesn't apply to me. If you live in the United States of America, you're rich. You're more wealthy than 92% of the world's population simply by virtue of being here. I was in a after-school devotion with a bunch of little kids a few weeks ago, and we were, we were talking and they began asking questions, and a lot of these kids live in the the public housing right by the school, and they don't have some of the stuff that our kids have. They don't have the stability in the home, many of them, that our kids have. And that's why I go and participate in that, because they need father figures and they need the gospel. They begin asking questions. Talked about my kid playing PlayStation on the TV. Your kid's got a TV in his room? You're rich. No, I'm not rich. And they're like, well, how many cars do you have? Well, I mean, I have, you know, my wife has one and I have one and then there's one in the garage. You've got three cars and a garage, you're rich. Well, wait a minute. And and then I'm like, no, 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 no. And one of the other little girls says, does your house have two stories? And I'm like, it does? She said, you're rich. Now, from my perspective, No, I'm not rich. But in actuality, you know what? There are people over in Kisi, Kenya, our brothers and sisters meeting over there today, that when they look at our houses, they see royalty. They see the lands of princes and princesses. They see palaces and castles because they live in a two-room mud hut. I looked at the lady who helps with the program and she said, you know, they kind of got a point (laughs) Said, yeah, they do, they do. If you live in the United States, you're a very wealthy person, whether you realize it or not. Wealth in Scripture is always a hindrance to spirituality. This isn't the sermon for a day. But you look at Laodicea; they knew they were wealthy in material goods, and because of that, Christ says you're naked and miserable and wretched and blind and poor. And you don't realize how spiritually sick you are. He tells him, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. I stand at the door of this church knocking. If any man open the door, well, I'll come in and fellowship with him, with sup with him, and he with me. In the Proverbs, Solomon says he begs God not to make him rich or poor, because if he were rich, he would. Be high and lifted up in himself and ask, Who is the Lord? And if he were poor, he would be tempted to steal and to sin against God. Wealth has a way of taking away our realization of our dependence on him. It does not take away our dependence on him, but it does blind us. To the perception of that reality, we think we're doing okay. Now, by the way, if there's anything this past year has taught us, is that it doesn't matter how much money we have, it doesn't matter how wealthy we think we are, it doesn't matter how much security we may think we have in the world. There are calamities bigger than us. Our economy is a house of cards. It can all come crashing down in a moment, and then we're left there with the same thing that our brothers have in Africa or the Philippines. You know what they have? They have Christ. And if that's all you have, you realize you have all that you need. The answer to that how is salvation accomplished? Is in verse 26. Who then can be saved? Jesus beheld them and said unto them, Here's the answer no working through it, no question to answer a question, no parables, no allegories, analogies, or metaphors. This is cut and dry, plain speech. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. At our meeting, one of the speakers relayed the story of asking his children how people go to heaven. And you remember one of the children responded. And it was a funny moment, but I want to clarify something about what was said. Not that I disagree with what he said, but I think it needs some clarification. His little girl said, nothing, nothing. What do you got to do to go to heaven? Nothing. His little boy said, well, you got to get old and die. And everybody laughed. And it was so loud that it just about clipped the microphone. If someone says, what do you have to do to go to heaven? The biblical answer is, with men, it's impossible. With men, it is Impossible. There's nothing you or I can do to go to heaven because there's nothing we could do that's good enough. Clarifying, something is needed for us to be saved. It isn't that we merely live our lives and one day we just go to be in glory when we die. That's what American open theism or deism teaches, particularly if you're a half decent person. But I think we've torn that down from this example today, haven't we? Something is needed, but there's nothing that I can do because it's impossible. Now, let's go back to the list that we began with. The answers depending, varying on the person that you might ask. What do you got to do to go to heaven? Well, you got to keep the law. It's impossible. With men, it is impossible. You've got to do more good than you do bad. With men, it is impossible. You've got to accept Jesus. Listen, if you're a natural man, that's impossible. How do you know? Because the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 It's impossible to receive him unless you are born of him, according to John chapter 1, which were born not of blood, nor of The will of man, nor of the flesh, but of God. You've got to pray a specific prayer. You know, you never find the apostles telling people, I'm going to lead you through this prayer so you get to go to heaven. Not one time in the book of Acts do you hear that. Pray a specific prayer. With men it is impossible. All right? Repent of all of your sins and believe with men it is impossible repentance and belief are evidences or results of a gracious state because by nature you have existence in Romans 3 what does Romans chapter 3 says there's none righteous no not one There's none that seeks after God. There's none that fears God. Those things are all, those traits, those good traits that none of us have by nature are things that are a part of a heart of repentance, a penitent heart. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Ephesians 2 describes it as being dead in trespasses and in sins. I give you a science project. I'm going to give you an experiment. You can test out what I'm saying in the real world. I want you to go to Maple Hill Cemetery this afternoon. I want you to pick the grave of your choice. I want you to walk over there to that grave, and I want you to say as loud as you can, as many times as you can, repent and believe and be saved. And the dead in the ground are going to stay dead because they are dead. And you hath he quickened who were dead. Before Christ changed you, you were not merely sick. You were not drowning in need of someone to throw you a rope. You had already drowned, you were deceased. I don't mean to be graphic and disgusting or rude or insensitive, but if there is a corpse floating in the water and you throw a rope, it's going to bounce off the corpse because the corpse is dead. Without Christ, we're not described as sick or dying. We are described as dead. As Titus 3 says, hateful and hating one another, living in malice and envy. That's us without Christ. You've got to repent and believe. With men, it is impossible. Repentance and belief are the result of salvation. Join a specific order. Wouldn't work to begin with. With men it is impossible. Keep the ordinances. You know, there was a man in Acts chapter 8, Simon Magus, who kept the ordinance of baptism. And knowing the church in that day, if he kept the ordinance of baptism, he probably kept the ordinance of communion too. And Peter looks at him and says, I I perceive that... You're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Peter looks at him and he says, I think you're a goat. How's that for being a nice, sensitive preacher? Now, your preacher's really rude sometimes. I mean, he just needs to be nicer. He needs to be less of a fire-breathing dragon and more like you know, Mr. Rogers or something. Nice and friendly. Take off the blazer and put on a sweater and you know, be nice and happy to people. Peter looks at Simon Magus and he says, I think you're a goat. I think you're unregenerate. Expelled him from the church for attempting to buy the gift of the apostles. That man went on the rest of his life to persecute the faith. He was a wicked man. Judas Iscariot kept the ordinances. He was baptized. If you read the four gospels communion account plainly, at least... The case could be made that he was there for the communion service and people fall on either side of that issue. Keeping the ordinances didn't do anything for Judas Iscariot. Why? Because God hadn't done a work first in his heart. He was a son of perdition. With men, it is impossible. How about live a life above sin from conversion to death? I hope that every single one of you lives a life above sin from conversion to death. But I also know my own experience and Scripture. If any man say he has no sin, he deceives himself, 1 John 1. Or Romans chapter 7, even when I would do good, evil is present with me. I know that as long as I am not yet glorified, Sin is a part of my being. And though I hate it, though I'm ashamed of sin, though I'm disgusted by sin, in me, I know that it will be a part of my existence that I beg and plead God to help me mortify every single day of my life. There was one perfect man. And he's not standing before you. Now, we'll conclude this next time Because this is half the sermon. With men it is impossible. But with God, with God, all things are possible. Teaching us what? Who then can be saved? It is impossible for you or me to save ourselves. But with God, all things are possible. With God... Salvation is not only possible, but salvation for His children is certain. I'll close with a simple reading of John chapter 6, not the whole chapter. Beginning in verse 37, and again, "...with men this is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible." All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. Salvation... As far as me earning it is an impossibility. But I thank the Lord of glory that His Father chose you before the world began. His Son redeemed you upon the cross of Calvary. And the Holy Spirit has quickened you when you were dead in trespasses and in sins, giving you eternal life. And because of that, and that alone, you will inherit eternal life. With God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much that what we could not do, Your Son has done for us. Oh, it doesn't matter if we insert one work or another as we fill in the blank of what good thing people think we have to do to go to glory. We know, Lord, that nothing we could do is good enough. So, Lord, help us not to be like that rich young ruler that goes away sorrowful. Help us to understand what you plainly told the disciples after that exchange that with men it's impossible, but praise God, with God all things are possible. We know, Father, that salvation is only through you. As Jonah said, as the well released him upon the dry ground, salvation is of the Lord. In Christ and in Christ alone do we trust for salvation. Help us to purge ourselves of the little legalisms and self-justifications and self-righteous thoughts that we have. Trusting only in your Son, for it's through him and him alone that we have salvation. We pray in his name and we say amen.